We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. They just get their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the ESA army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Well, this year on Life and Faith, we've had some big names on the program. Christos Cholkas, Tom Holland, Malcolm Turnbull. We've had some really rich conversations there, and it's well worth a listen to those. But today we're shining a spotlight on the people who rarely make the headlines. But, you know, they really should. Yes, um, I was inspired for this episode uh, when I recently reread C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, which is this allegory, I suppose, of heaven and hell. And in the book, you've got the narrator who finds himself on the foothills of heaven. Just go with me. And while he's there, he sees this woman walking toward him. And it's like she's at the head of this really joyful parade. And it's so um, magnificent, the kind of celebration that is made of her, that the narrator wonders, she must have been so important on earth. Mm. And he's actually told, no, 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 no. She was a nobody, actually. But she was just someone who loved people really, really well. And so it's said of her, every girl that met her was her daughter. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves, which I think is such a beautiful idea. Yeah, I've always loved that picture. It's a complete sort of inverse of our normal sort of values, if you if you like. It's really quite a challenging. I remember reading that as well and being struck by it and thinking to myself, you know, I've I've met a few people I reckon who are like that in my life, who pretty unknown, pretty anonymous, but nonetheless are kind of the great ones in my mind. Mm, there's that line from uh, Lewis again. He says. Fame in heaven and fame on earth are two different things. I just think it just shows, oh, do we have the wrong priorities? Perhaps. (laughs) Well, today on Life and Faith, we're going to tell three stories of, well, not quite nobodies, because obviously no one's a nobody, but people whose love for others is really great and profound, uh, with the idea that if Lewis is onto something, then these are the kind of people who would be the great ones of heaven. Yeah, and there's some some really lovely stories here. So it's worth saying we we could have done a whole episode on each of them. Their stories are so captivating, uh, but we'll be skipping through those stories that we could have dwelt on in enormous length. So, but I, I think we'll get a taste for what they've done. And just a note here for listeners: our third interview today features some distressing detail about neglected and abused children. That's just something to be aware of. But let's get into it. For 11 years, Diana Aiken has been serving in the soup kitchen at St Matthew's Anglican Church in Manly. But it's not quite a soup kitchen. I guess it um, looks like a restaurant. So we um, set up in our function room at the church and we have a commercial size kitchen. And um, so we cook there at church and we set up the room um, for table service. So it's not a case of our guests coming up to um, a bench and, you know, throwing some food on their plate and off they go. Uh, We set up tables with tablecloths 
knives and forks, you know, sometimes candles or flowers. Um, and um, our guests feel very special as, um, as a result. People come in, grab a cup of coffee and some biscuits or something and sit down and relax because they're often quite stressed. Um, it's a, um, for many people, it's a stressful um, way of life that they're living, especially if they're homeless. Um, so when they come to, to us on Monday night, they know that um, they can just sit and relax and we'll bring food to them. We have um, two courses, a main meal and, and dessert, um, and we usually serve seconds as well. So there's an enormous range of, of food and um, it is, um, it's just beautiful. It really is beautiful. And, and that's something um, that I know our guests um, do appreciate. They absolutely appreciate the, the care that goes into um, the meals that are cooked. But it does go beyond that. They're, they are not just there for, for those meals. From what Diana says, the soup kitchen that really isn't a soup kitchen, but it's more like a restaurant, but isn't really a restaurant either. Well, there are guests, as she calls them. They can come along. They can have a shower if they like. They can pick up some clothes donated through Lifeline. Social workers come along to connect people with government services. And if anyone needs a doctor, the Streetside Medic Van is now available for checkup. This has evolved over the years and all these sort of things are coming together. Yeah, and one of the soup kitchen volunteers also acts as an informal caseworker, I guess. So if guests have specific financial or legal questions, he offers to connect them with people in the church's congregation who might be able to lend their expertise. Now, we're telling you all this, not Diana, because while this soup kitchen slash restaurant slash hub for social services, while it does a lot of good in the community, for Diana, the point of all of this is the community. What has happened over the 11 years is that I've developed relationships with most of our guests and friendships. So it's not even that it's a, um, a kind of an us and a them, it's we're all, we're all part of a soup kitchen community. Um, so yes, they're very much our guests and our friends. Um, I have phone numbers of some of our guests. We text each other and um, keep up with each other. I can ask them how they're going the day and they ask me how I've been during the week and you know, if I, I'm not there one week, it's, you know, where were you? You're okay and what have you been up to? So, which is lovely. It's a, you know, it's a very much a two-way two -way thing that's, that's going on. Our guests care about us and we care about them. There's a lot to care about. Plenty of people in this community have issues with mental health, unemployment, drugs or alcohol, or they just struggle to relate to others. We've got people who um, just don't connect socially. So you just sort of, you just go, how do you, you know, how do you manage in, in a world like that? One of our guests um, who is now um, 62 years old was um, shot in the head by his father after his father had just killed, shot his mother. And um, the father left him to, obviously, to die in, um, in his cot. He didn't, obviously. And um, he survived and was brought up by people from Salvation Army. He um, is an extreme, of course, that's an extreme case, but he daily still, so that's um, a long time um, since that event, 
um, he um, is dealing daily with that sense of rejection. Um, but it's amazing um, that his faith, he does have faith, that actually helps him to know that he's loved and cared for um, by God. And the fact that he's with us of a Monday night, he tells me um, over and over again that being part of that community is what helps him to get through a day. And many of our guests are saying that. They, um, they're um, stressed for various reasons, which I, I alluded to before, and they'll often say to me that they feel much better when they leave Soup Kitchen than when they arrived. And you sort of think, oh my gosh, but it's only a couple of hours on a Monday night. You know, how could that be? Sounds like a little bit of love goes a long way. I asked Diana what care means to her, given all the hospitality she's been part of over the last decade. In our soup kitchen situation, that to me is about being genuine. It's about really loving people. Caring for our guests, I think, is um, is not trying to tell them what they need, but it is about listening to what they, they think they need, because often that's very different to what I think they need. And so caring about them is caring about what they think and caring about their circumstances and trying to not minimise anything that they're saying to you, um, but absolutely um, validating their, you know, their challenges and really being sincere about how you're listening to them, that you do care what, about what their week is has been like. And I think the fact that we appear to serve them, that it does go through their mind, why are you doing this? Why do you keep doing this? Why do you, you know, set this room up so beautifully? Why do we have, you know, restaurant quality meals, you know? And it does start to tweak that, oh, well, you know, why would you, why would you do that unless you, you want us to, to, to feel something and to know something about the person you have faith in? Diana's faith is a big part of why she does this. Well, my faith in God and his plan for the world and his love for the world seems to mean to me that I should then be someone who, who loves and someone who cares about uh, the people around me. So I figure that if we as a, um, a team of Christians can, if we can put ourselves out a night a week and um, want to, choose to be with people who are coming from very different walks of life than we are, then um, I'm hoping that our guests will get some idea of what what God is like, how much he cares. So it's, it's trying, to, trying to convey to, to our guests that, that God loves them and, and this is what love looks like. That's Diana Aiken of St Matthew's Anglican Church's Soup Kitchen. In 2019, she received on behalf of the Soup Kitchen a Community Service Award as part of the Australia Day Awards. And Ryan justly deserved, I think, Justine. And what Diana says there, what love looks like, hold on to that thought, especially as we get into Irene and Issam Khoury's story. The couple joined us by phone from their property on New South Wales' south coast. 
Well, in 1993, Irene was diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease and then, 13 years later, polycystic liver disease. And her condition meant that fluid-filled cysts grew all over her organs. And this caused incredible pain in her back, her sides and her abdomen. And over time, the cysts gradually got bigger and her organs swelled, impeding Irene's ability to live a normal life. It basically impacted the whole body, my whole life. Um, I couldn't sit or stand or do anything, cook or clean like a usual person. Showering was hard. Standing behind the stove was hard. Sitting down was hard. Lying down was hard. Doing everything was hard. So I was basically housebound and just lying down and not doing very much. Irene wasn't able to get much relief at night either. The pain in her sides and back made it too difficult to get proper rest. And because of her condition, she needed help to get to the bathroom, sometimes several times a night. But Irene had Isam. He's an extraordinary person. He, he took care of everything full time. So when we had the kids, he took care of all the kids, schooling, meals and you know, taking them to school. He was by my side every step of the way. Everything. Um, everything you could think of, it's, um, he was there by myself and he had to take care of everything on his own. Isaiah never whinge or complain. Um, he just patiently did what he had to do and he just took over and, and tended to all my needs. And I could see it, um, it, he started to be worn out, but he never complained. He just carried on. Isam said he just did what needed doing. Uh, for me, it was very difficult to watch her uh, decline in her health like that. Um, she was always very active and, and I felt at a loss because, um, you know, I, I just felt I needed to do something, but I wasn't really sure how, you know, or what to do. Um, all I could do was support her and, and just take up the slack in some areas. Um, and that's about it. Well, you say take up the slack, but from what Irene says, you were doing everything. You were uh, doing the shopping, the cooking, taking her to appointments, raising the kids. Does that sound right? Is yeah. that how you remember it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's something that you, you just do. You don't think, oh, well, it's not my job or why is this happening to me? It, it's something that needs to be done. You know, we're a family unit. And, um, you know, the jobs have got to get done and someone has to do it, whoever's able to. But this meant some big changes to their life. Once Irene got to the point where she required care around the clock, Isam gave up work to care for her full time. They might have had each other and their children, Sarah and Daniel, but still this was a lonely time for them. And we didn't want to publish all our feelings and every, everything we were going through. Um, and some people were aware that we were having difficulties, and that's fine. Others, as you say, were uh, quite insensitive, making comments. Um, but that loneliness came from more than just that. It was we started withdrawing from um, our circle of friends and family to some extent because Irene wasn't able to to mix so much and especially with her um, immune problem developing. And we just felt we were doing it alone, but not totally alone. I mean, we had a strength beyond each other. We had Sarah and Daniel, but we have a faith in God. And um, that, gave us, that gave us that added strength to go on, knowing that, you know, 
everything we do is not just for the moment. You know, there's a there's a purpose in our life, and it's more than just the superficial. And so we we just take up those challenges and uh, and go with it. You mentioned God. How did you experience uh, God's care at this time? I think God's care um, came just from the knowledge of his plan for us. I, I think we're all created uh, for a purpose, each one of us. And we don't always understand what that purpose is. And I, I think as Irene's um, condition developed, uh, I found God's purpose for my life uh, um, unfolding to some degree and developing. And I had to, I had to start changing my perspective on life. You know, what am I here for? What's the main purpose? You know, before that, there were a whole lot of other things that I felt were important. Like what? Um, Tell me. Well, career and, um, you know, other interests and, and things like that. You know, just the usual things of building a home and raising family, educating the children, all those things. And they're not wrong in themselves. But I think, as I say, as Irene's condition worsened, I found that the real priorities are the basic things, you know, our basic needs. Um, and health is, is one of those very important things. And Irene was at a point where she needed that care. And that became my priority to do what I can. I mean, I can't do too much apart from just support her. And um, that's what I um, endeavoured to do. One of the better-known traditional marriage vows is to be with the other person in sickness and in health. Here's Islam's take on those words. I think subconsciously we all think none of those negative things are going to arise in our relationship, in our marriage, you know, in our future. And so we make that promise without really thinking about what it entails. And uh, But for me... When I made those promises, I believed it, uh, as I think many people do believe it. The thing is, you never really understand um, the power that you have, the strength that you might have inside to honour those promises until you're confronted with that choice. And for me, it was empowering in a way because what was just a, a vague notion became real to me. I made those promises, and now I know that I can uphold them. I can take up that responsibility and um, and stand knowing that the commitment I made was a real commitment because you don't always know. You know, a lot of times we just rashly make a promise and, and down the track we regret it. But there's nothing I regret with this at all. Islam says he wasn't always a particularly caring person, especially when he was younger. I think a lot of us would say that of ourselves, actually. But since then, Islam has learnt a lot about what care is. I think for me, caring for somebody is just trying to project yourself, your own mind and your feelings into that person, into their life. Try to understand them as a person and their situation and what they're going through and also their needs. What are their needs? Um, I don't think you can care for anybody without understanding what their needs might be. And, um, and then having that commitment to try to meet those needs. And uh, sometimes that just means saying uh, no to your own for a period. Sometimes it just means saying no to 
yourself in some areas. But I think the the major aspect is just knowing that person and providing the support that they need, whatever that might be. In 2018, Irene and Isam's lives changed again. After a torturous wait, at a time when Irene's kidneys were only functioning at 12%, Irene received a kidney and liver transplant. When her organs were removed from her body, they were so enlarged, they weighed an astonishing, get this, 20 kilos. Imagine that. It's now two and a half years post-transplant, and life is so different. I can do the everyday things that people take for granted. It's just amazing just to be able to walk and walk outside, just do the ordinary things, which I couldn't do before. So it's really a, a, a wonderful blessing. And I suppose you feel really grateful to the donor as well. Oh, I am. I'm forever grateful to the donor for the act of kindness. Uh, without that chance, I won't be able to be here and live uh, the extended life that's given to me and enjoy my family, friends and everything. And now to our third story. Carolyn Stedman has been fostering children for 45 years, and that's on top of raising her own children. Now, I interviewed her for a book I wrote a few years ago. I don't know if you remember this, Justine, but this was a book about mostly quite prominent people, actually. But Carolyn, one of the lesser known ones, was I think her story was the one that impacted me the most. It's really quite interesting. Stunning, in what we're talking about it today. Is, it totally fits with that. Uh, you know, even if I go back and sort of look through that, as I very occasionally might do, but I just find it a really moving story. I mean, she has looked after some incredibly vulnerable children with tragic backstories and uh, she's done it for so long with the most incredible kind of persistence and stamina I find I'm a bit in awe of her I have to admit but it all started when Carolyn heard an ad on the radio when she was a young mum actually talking about the shortage of foster parents in New South Wales when her husband David came home from work she said she wanted to do this and he agreed I knew I loved staying at home with children and I'd had a second child and I had was aware of people starting to ask me when I was going back to work. And I'm thinking in my head, oh, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I like being at home with my children. <laughs> and yes, and I thought, well, you know, when I, when I heard the ad, I thought, oh, this would be a nice way to stay at home and help out somebody at, while I was at home. But Carolyn, plenty of women, uh, you know, have their two children and think that's enough work for me. <laughs> I'm not going to go out and find more children to look after. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something I really enjoy doing. Yes. And you wound up having more children, is that right, after um, you began fostering? We had another four, so we've got six children. <laughs> and yes, and but in between, uh, having had the second child, then we started fostering, and then in between all my own pregnancies, we'd have another baby, another foster baby, and then, then I'd get pregnant again, and then I'd wait for two years until that baby was two, and then I'd start fostering again, and yes, so we've gone on like that. But since I stopped having children, um, yes, we've pretty much done fostering most of the time, except the, when we go on an overseas trip, which isn't very often. <laughs> and there's always a cot in the house, <laughs> and, and children's toys, and bouncinets, and all of that. Now, Carolyn and David's children have all grown up now and had their own kids, but that hasn't stopped these grandparents from fostering young babies. Nobody lives at home anymore except David and I. Everybody else has gone off and got married. Uh, and um, 
But yes, it's definitely a family affair when the children were there and now it's a team for David and I. So the way we work it, we mostly take newborns because a lot of people don't want to do newborns because a lot of women work these days and they want to get up and do the nighttime stuff. Um, so I don't, I'm not, not an early to bed person. So I wait up and do the midnight feed and then David will go to bed early. He might go to bed at nine o'clock and then he'll do the next feed, which might be about 3am, something like that. And then I sleep through till six o'clock from midnight till six o'clock and then I can do the next feed then. So he does he often does a night feed when they're really little and needing the feeds in the night. Mm. So yes, definitely a team effort and I couldn't have done it without him. Carolyn and David have fostered children of all ages and sibling groups of up to three children at a time. But she has a particular way with newborns. And having young babies in the house, she says, was good for her own children as well. Well, I think my, my children learned a lot about what it's like having a baby in the house and they know that they don't sleep for four hours in between feeds and especially when they've had a little hit of heroin from their mother before they've arrived or they've been abused physically or something like that. They've come in some very bad states. Some, some children we've had to actually soak nappies off because they have been in them for so long they've stuck, they're stuck. So we've seen some terrible terrible things that have happened to children. One child who had three broken limbs and somebody, some bright spark at the hospital did one in luminous green, one was bright pink and another one was yellow. (laughs) But that was tricky bathing that child. (laughs) So yes, we've certainly seen the sad side of life, but my, my children got a lot of fun playing with another baby and looking out like they liked looking after them and helping out. Well, did you get a bit of a shock hearing that? It's incredibly confronting. Carolyn has fostered some extremely traumatised children in her time, which adds a different dimension to how she goes about getting to know them. You've got to build up a relationship and try and form a relationship with that child so that they feel they can trust you. That's what it all boils down to, that they need to trust you, that you're not going to hurt them. Because when you've been, been neglected or abused, they think that other people might do that to them too. There are some children that that trust never never happened. Mm. I had a, a couple of little sisters who were three and five, um, and for them that's true. They just never they never trusted me. They were sexually abused, those little girls, and physically abused. They were found in a bin at Top Ride Shopping Centre, and they the little girl, the eldest one, was terrified of our large rubbish bin. And it's near our back door, but nobody ever told me until many months later that she had been found in a bin. Her mother had put her in a bin. And so every time we went out the back door, there was all this terrible screaming and a, a, a commotion. We have other exits from our house, and I had worked out that if we went out a different door, it, it was okay. But at, at, after a, a fairly lengthy time of all of that, I said to one of the, the caseworker, I'm really concerned about she seems to be terrified of the bin. And she said, oh, well, yes, well, we found her in a bin. And I thought, well, that would have been helpful to know. <laughs> so, you know, things like that. Well, there are some shocking and tragic stories here. But it's important to say they're not all like that. Well, Carolyn did tell us one that turned out a bit differently. There was one little boy that Carolyn and David looked after from when he was just five days old. After about a year, family services had located his dad, a 55-year-old builder from Alice Springs. He had been married in his 20s, but that marriage didn't last very long and he'd been single for many, many years. 
So the department rang this gentleman and said, we believe that we have a child belonging to you in Sydney. And he, he, when we eventually met him, he said he nearly fell through the floor. The mother, who the builder had had a brief relationship with, hadn't let him know that he'd had a son. But the DNA test proved it, and the department left it up to the man to decide what to do. He wanted to be a dad to this little boy. So he came to my house and he stayed three days in Sydney and he came to our house every morning at 8 o'clock and stayed till 6 o'clock and I taught him everything I knew about <laughs> how to look after a baby in three days and off he went back to Alice Springs. So he used to ring me up about every few weeks and he'd say, Carolyn, he's climbed onto the dining room table, what should I do? <laughs> And so I'd sort out all his problems for him. He's now got the sink, the cupboard under the sink open and he's playing with the dishwasher tablets. I told him about locks for, to door, for cupboard doors and I was thinking, oh, goodness, if this, boy, this child survives, we'll be, we'll be doing well. <laughs> anyway, on one of, the, one of the phone calls, he said to, said to, he used to often say to me, you should come, have you ever been to Alice Springs? You should come. And we hadn't. And so we were, up that, and were in between placements. And I said to David, the next school holidays, we should go out to Alice Springs and we'll go and see... Stephen and see how the baby's going. This is probably about another year had passed, so he would have been getting two and a half to three each by the time we got there. Anyway, we went on the Garn and it, it pulled into Alice Springs Station and there he was with this little three-year-old beside him with a bunch of flowers, a huge bunch of flowers, and I felt like the Queen Mother stepping off the train and being <laughs> presented with flowers. <laughs> anyway, he showed us all around Alice Springs and then one day he said, would you like to come to the Camel Cup with us? Now, I'm not really into horse racing, but I thought, when you're in Alice Springs, you do this. So we went to the Camel Cup and we met him there and he had the little boy in a stroller pushing it through the red dust <laughs> and the little boy is sucking on his dummy and he looks, the little fellow looks over the side of the pram and the dummy falls into the dirt. And I thought, oh, goodness me, this, is, this will be interesting. It didn't put his father off. He pulled out a tinny of VB out of his back pocket, washed the dummy, <laughs> poked it straight back in his mouth. I said, oh, my goodness, Stephen, you are not bringing this baby up the way I was in Sydney. <laughs> he said, oh, he laughed and said, oh, this is the way we do it in the, in the, in the centre. And we went to his house and that child slept on a mattress with no sheet on it on the floor. I learnt a lot from that man and that placement because I always had children in a pristine cot with a beautiful white sheet and a little mobile hanging above the cot that's played music and all of that sort of thing. There was none of that at his house, but he loved that little boy and that little boy was absolutely bonded to him. And it just showed me there's more than one way to bring up a child. There's lots of different ways and he was a, a real learning experience for me. That little boy would be about 20-something now, so that was a long time ago. That little boy ended up loved and cared for by his father. But Carolyn often doesn't know what comes of the kids she cares for, which is usual practice within fostering. That can be hard, but it's not the only hard thing about fostering. Saying goodbye can be incredibly difficult. When, when a baby comes into your house at two or three or four days old and you look after that child until they're close to two, you are deeply in love with that child. That is like one of your own children. And people have said to me, you must be able to hold back some of your love. You must only love them a little bit. But that is, that's not possible. I don't know how you love any, anything, anybody a little bit. It's, for me, it's all or, or nothing sort of thing. Carolyn is 74 years old. 
And it turns out she's fostered 74 children over those 45 years. For a time, they really are family. All of the children that come into us call me Mama and my husband Pop because that's what our 26 grandchildren call us. And that's what they hear all the time. So they just refer to us as Mama. Now, did you hear that? 26 grandchildren. When you add on those 74 foster children, Carolyn has been Mama to 100 children and she's got no intention of stopping anytime soon. You know, people would say, surely this is a time when you can just look after yourself and enjoy your life. And they do. <laughs> and what do you say back to them? I say to them, I believe I'm a Christian. I read the Bible. I have never found anything in the Bible about retirement. And I think that God just wants you to do what you're good at until you can't. And I can at the moment. <laughs> so that's my answer. <laughs> Wow. I mean, it's, it's so important that children feel loved and secure and safe. And I want to do that for children who can't feel like that in their own home. Well, we hope you've enjoyed these three little snapshots of what love looks like. Different guises and different contexts. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. Thanks so much to Diana Aiken, Irene and Isam Khoury and Carolyn Stedman for sharing their experiences with us. And a big thank you to Anthea Godsmark, our producer, who put the whole episode together. If you've enjoyed the conversation, why not send it on to someone who might enjoy it too? Or leave us a rating or review. It helps to get the word out. Next week. There's a kind of a view out there that the thing that makes you, you, is driven by the neurons uh, inside your head. Your thoughts, your personality, your decisions, they're all coming from cell voltages and chemical reactions and neurotransmitters. So what I wanted to do in a book that I've written called Am I Just My Brain is to highlight actually there are more alternatives than that that actually offer a better understanding of human beings. Mm -hmm.